You guys are a good team. I can tell. I can tell you work together. <laughs> you want to say what from before? <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. As her student was in the room, we're having a conversation where we're having partial sentences at each other, but we understand exactly what we're saying. Welcome back to The Curbsiders, the internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto, here without my normal co-hosts, Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham and Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Unfortunately, they couldn't make it tonight, but we have two great guests and a great conversation on hepatitis C, so I'm going to get right into the guest introductions here. Our first guest is Dr. Gina Simoncini. She's been on the show twice before. She's an associate professor of medicine at Temple University Hospital. She attended medical school at the Lewis Katz School of Medicine at Temple, where she completed her residency training, as well as a year as a chief resident. Dr. Simoncini went on to complete an HIV fellowship at the AIDS Healthcare Foundation and has recently completed her master's of public health at Temple University. Dr. Simoncini's interests include HIV care, the treatment of hepatitis C, women's health, and LGBTQ care, and we are especially happy to have her back on the show. Our other guest is Dr. David Koren. He is a board-certified pharmacotherapy specialist and infectious diseases clinical pharmacist at Temple University Hospital. Dr. Koren graduated from Temple University School of Pharmacy and completed his pharmacy practice residency at Yale New Haven Hospital and then completed an infectious diseases residency at the Cleveland Clinic. Since returning to Philadelphia, Dr. Koren has been the primary HIV pharmacist in both the infectious diseases and internal medicine-based HIV practices at Temple. He additionally serves as a clinical educator in the areas of HIV and hepatitis C, precepting for both the Temple University Pharmacy Residency Program and as an adjunct assistant clinical professor for the Temple University School of Pharmacy. David continues to practice in the multidisciplinary and collaborative practices at Temple with focuses on medical education, management, and access. This discussion with David and Gina goes all through the basics of hepatitis C and how it can be treated with a new direct acting antiviral therapy. And I think you're really going to enjoy this. It has a lot of great clinical pearls in there from both of our guests. So without further ado, here's my discussion with David and Gina. This is Dr. Matthew Otto here with two great guests for this topic of hepatitis C and how we can treat it in primary care. Our first guest is Dr. Gina Simoncini. She's an associate professor of medicine at Temple University Hospital coming back for her third appearance. Is that right, Gina? Yeah, it is actually. Yeah, you're you're becoming a regular on the show. That's, that's I'm great. I'm a lifer. <laughs> Congratulations, Gina. I'm so happy for you. <laughs> and okay. also, also on the show tonight is Dr. David Karen. He is an infectious disease clinical pharmacist at Temple University Hospital and also an adjunct professor at the Temple University School of Pharmacy. Hi, David. Hello, glad to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show. We, you know, I actually, when Gina suggested that we have you on the show, I was like, that's a great idea. And we might be doing this for future topics as well. Like in the hospital, it's always nice to have a pharmacist rounding with you. And I feel like this is like virtual rounds, like me, you and Gina. And uh, yeah, it's it's good. It's a well, well-rounded team. Glad to be part of the team. Since you're since you're the new guy, I wanted to ask you this question first. Can you give the audience a one-liner to describe yourself just so they can get a sense of, of who you are? So I'm a 33-year-old male who's an infectious disease clinical pharmacist with an interest in HIV and hepatitis C. And I enjoy going to the gym and probably trying every restaurant in Philadelphia. That is a, that's a pretty big goal there, actually. Philly is, it has some good food, so good luck. What can, what can you recommend to our audience who, who lives in Philadelphia? What's a good restaurant? I'd probably say Zahav. I'm, uh, I'm Israeli, so I'd say that it's a very good representation of good Israeli food. I, yeah, I agree. I really like that beet hummus. Yum. It's so good there. 
I get that answer. I've asked that to probably three or four people since I moved back to Philadelphia. And I think about two thirds have said that. So that's, that's interesting. And Gina, people know you, but could you remind them, you know, what would be, what, what do you want them to know about you? So I'm a 30 something approaching 40 something physician. I work at Temple. I'm an internist and I did fellowship training in HIV medicine. So I have clinical interest in HIV and hepatitis C and prevention of both. That's why, that's why we've asked you on the show, of course. Well, Gina, how about, how about you recommend a book? Anything, anything you're reading lately that you think the audience might enjoy? So nothing that I've read lately, but I'll tell you, I think a book that everyone should read that's, you know, interested in the history of HIV in the U.S. is And the Band Played On. I don't know if you guys have had anybody recommend that book lately. Mm. It's by Randy Schiltz. Um, it was made into a movie, too, I think, on Rotten Tomatoes. I think it was like 100%. So I'm sure Paul would have something good to say about that. <laughs> um, but it's it's a it kind of... Uh, categorizes exactly what happened with the AIDS epidemic in the 80s in San Francisco. I'll have to check that out. i always looking for good book recommendations. David, do you have a book recommendation for the audience? I was thinking the book that got me through the beginning of my training, which got me through the beginning of residency, was called Antibiotics Simplified, which is written by one of my professors, so by Gallagher and McDougall. Uh, and so this is a very easy, quick read that gives you a basic overview of all the antibiotics that are out there. I know it's been updated since then. I think it includes antifungals and antivirals these days, but it's a good overview, especially for some of the lesser known or lesser used medications. Is that a, is that a giant book or is it a pocket size book? It will fit in the pocket of a white coat. Let's just put it that way. Okay. That, that meets the criteria. <laughs> The, the next question I want to ask you, David, we, we've had pharma, uh, a pharmacist on the show before and asked, what app, what medical app do you, do you use most in your clinical practice and or would you recommend for the audience? So I, each app is good for its own individual things, but I find that one of the most complete is Lexicomp. That's mm -hmm. the one I use on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, I find that it has a pretty good drug interaction profile as well, as well as um, very up-to-date uh, medical dosing information. Yeah, I switched. That was the last answer we got to when we talked to uh, Sean Jeffries from uh, American Geriatric Society. And he he said the same thing. And I've switched over to that. And, and the, the interaction thing is really great. And it took me a little while to get used to the Lexicomp jumping around in there. But I, I use it all the time now, too. I, I really like that. Gina, how about you? Any apps that you have that you can recommend? Any related to hep C or HIV that are good? Well, that's a very good segue of what I was going to say. So yeah, so there, um, there's two things. So there's a website and there's also an app by the same group. And so it's the University of Liverpool and they have both a hepatitis C and an HIV app. And I'm just pulling it up on my phone. So it's hep iChart and HIV iChart, um, downloadable free. And it's basically a drug-drug interaction uh, mechanism for both of those diseases. I think the only downside to it is as it is, you know, a UK app, you actually have to use all of the generics. And sometimes you have to break up the co-formulated drugs into the generics, which, you know, for a person who's not super familiar with them might be a little tedious, but it's very up to date. And David and I have um, talked about if we've Liverpooled um, drug interactions <laughs> before. So. It's become a verb. It's that, it's yeah. that good. Okay. That's where we are now. <laughs> and the website is very easy to read as well. I got it. Okay. David, since you haven't been on the show, I'm going to throw you this question. Gina's answered it before. If you had to give advice to a learner uh, or a teacher of medicine, something that maybe helped you along the way, what would that be? So I actually have both a pharmacy resident and a pharmacy student on rotation with me right now that are kind of finding their way, if you will. And so I tell them that if you take nothing else from this rotation, then find something that you want to do that makes you happy to go into work every day. You know, find something that you love and run with it, no matter what it is. I think Paul... Paul tweeted at Stewart that if you if you love what you do, then you never work a day in your life or something. I think that recently happened on Twitter. I thought that was pretty funny because uh, Paul could be cranky sometimes. Let's be honest. <laughs> oh, leave Paul alone. I, I promised Paul that I would make fun of him tonight on air since he's not here. So I fulfilled my promise. I think now we can actually go on to the, the main part of the episode here.
Thank you for your recommendations, both of you. And uh, we have a case, as always, from Cashlack Memorial Hospital. And this is a 38-year-old Caucasian male. He presented to the outpatient clinic saying he's just had a month of worsening fatigue. His past medical history is not much high blood pressure, depression, diabetes. He is living in a men's shelter because he was evicted from his house. He smokes marijuana. Uh, In the past, he's experimented with cocaine and injection drug use, but none currently. And he's on an antidepressant. He's on a blood pressure med. His utox is positive for cannabinoids and his HIV, uh, his HIV assay is non-reactive. Hep C antibody is reactive. And Gina, I'll throw this to you. Where where do we start with a patient like this? Well, I think the the first step probably would be to rewind in time and to actually order a hepatitis C antibody with reflex to confirmatory viral load test as the number one take-home of today's podcast. So let's not do antibodies anymore for hepatitis C. Let's do the confirmatory reflex testing, which both Quest and LabCorp have. Um, They tend to be the two labs that we use at our institution. I'm not sure nationally, but they both have reflex testing. And that's really the recommendation now because it's one lab test, it's one blood draw, and it's basically all in one you find out if a patient has chronic hepatitis C. Because I don't know how many patients have a hep C antibody lurking in deep in the chart somewhere and never had a viral load and never got those results. So that would be my first approach. Awesome. That's great. Actually, where I, at Cashlack, I don't believe they had the reflex. Hopefully they have it now, but, so I had not been using that, but that's a, that's great advice. Well, yeah. The reason that we wanted to do this topic, there was this, I believe it was called the ASCEND trial, and it was in the Annals of Internal Medicine this summer. And maybe, Gina, if you could tell us a little bit about that trial and why, what are the implications of that trial? Yeah, so I think for the general audience member, treating hepatitis C, I think, has largely been a specialist treatment. Um, So meaning most people who are treating hepatitis C nationally are either infectious disease doctors, hepatologists, or gastroenterologists. And so what the ASCEND trial basically did was look to see if there are primary care providers, including uh, physicians and nurse practitioners, who could treat patients' hepatitis C just as well as those that are specialists. And um, it's largely based on the the model that's called the ECHO model, which was um, something that used to be used in the Southwest U.S. in resource-limited areas where there's not many specialists that um, can be used to treat for hepatitis C and other diseases. And so the ASCEND trial showed that primary care providers with a couple of hours of training can treat patients just as well as specialists. And this is a big deal because In the hepatitis C world, um, there are three major restrictions to treatment. One is the provider restriction, so um, which providers can prescribe the drug. The other one is sobriety restrictions. So if some states um, must require a patient to be sober from drugs and alcohol before treatment. And then the last one is the fibrosis uh, restriction. So the fibrosis restriction is in certain states, patients have to have advanced liver fibrosis to qualify for treatment. So this is one of the ways that I'm trying to say this politically correct. This is one of the ways that we can control the can control the cost of hepatitis C treatment, which isn't necessarily in everyone's best interest. Yeah, because, uh, and David, maybe maybe you're thinking the same thing. So it's since liver, when the liver is damaged at early stages, it's reversible, but waiting until it's more advanced seems like it might not be in the patient's best interest, but it it sounds like maybe that's the most cost effective way to go about this to prioritize like the top the highest risk people rather than just everybody that's positive and this is an evolving topic because as more medications have come out they have dramatically decreased the overall price as a whole we were talking about you know the news articles with $1000 a pill when we first started with the new direct acting antiviral treatment that we're going to talk about um, but as more medications come out there's been pretty much a price war driving down that price as things go along. Well, that's that's good news. And and since we were, were just talking about the fibrosis, Gina, can you tell us a little bit about 
let's say we did get the reflex test and the reflex was positive. There was hepatitis C RNA in this patient's blood. So we've kind of confirmed the patient has an active hep C infection. What do you do next to before you start treatment here? What are, what are their testing? So in terms of evaluation for um, a patient prior to hepatitis C treatment, we usually get a CBC. Um, and one of my favorite clinical pearls for medical students and residents is if a person has hepatitis C and they have low platelets, they have cirrhosis until proven otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a really nice poor man's marker of whether or not a patient has cirrhosis without having an ultrasound or another type of test. So CMP for AST and ALT and then, li- and then renal function. CBC, then we do genotyping. And um, we also do another test, which is called the NS5A resistance test. Um, There are certain drugs that can have uh, resistance to that type, that part of the hep C genome. And so we need to test for that. And then we do coags, and then we do hepatitis B testing. So we do the surface antigen, the core antibody, the surface antibody. And then um, we generally get something that is called the fibro test or fibroshore, depending on if it's Quest or LabCorp. It is a proprietary test. So it's a non-invasive marker of fibrosis that's based on serologies. And then we get a liver ultrasound. So that would be our, our complete workup. Now, I know from... Uh, from from reading about non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, there's there's this magnetic resonance elastography, and then there's the there's the fibro scan, which is sort of like the ultrasound version of the elastography. Uh, at least that's how I think of it. And are those tests essential, or does does this blood test like kind of supplant that? Can you tell someone's fibrosis score based on that? Can you categorize them as high? advanced fibrosis based on just blood blood work? I'll tell you what we do, and then I'll tell you why we do it. We basically do lab markers for fibrosis um, because it's easiest on patients. Mm-hmm. And we know that it has been validated for patients in terms of being able to determine their fibrosis. And then most importantly, it's accepted by the insurers as a, a format of fibrosis. There is no patient I ever meet who wants to have a liver biopsy. (laughs) And although liver biopsies are gold standards, there is a 15% sampling error. And so you have to do multiple passes. It's invasive. And there's, you know, increased risk for infection and bleeding and, you know, damage to a surrounding structure. So liver biopsies have really fallen away. I would say um, next to serologic testing for fibrosis, um, I think the next most common thing that's done is transient elastography, also known as fibroscanning, which is also proprietary um, terms. And so the idea with this is that it's similar to ultrasound, but the vibrations that get made by the ultrasound probe gets converted into a fibrosis marking. And so the issue with the fibro scans is that there's not very many of them in the U.S., In Philly, I heard recently that there are now three institutions in Philly that have this. And so it just kind of hit the U.S. market in non-research settings, maybe within the last two years. Mm. Um, It really came out of Europe, and there was a separate probe that needed to be used for the U.S. just because obesity can really affect the, the results of the test. And so we needed a special extra large probe awesome. for our, our American population. <laughs> but the interesting story about fiber scanning, which I love to tell everybody, is that it actually was used to test um, in France if cheese was mature. <laughs> and so they would basically put it on a wheel of cheese and determine if, you know, the center of the cheese was mature. And so now we're using it for our foie gras of uh, Americans for hepatitis C. <laughs> That's a great fact. I love it. So let's say that I'm going to learn how to prescribe this now. That's kind of the point of this episode. And when I get all these tests back, I get this NS5A resistance test and I get the fibro test. How difficult is it going to be to, those are the two that I'm not familiar with that you mentioned. So how difficult are those going to be? Is it binary? Is it like, this is advanced, this is not. And, you know, for me, I'm not that, you know, Gina, I'm not that intelligent. (laughs) Matt, I, I, I don't like hearing that. I did help to train you, so yeah, that makes yeah. me look badly. 
So basically with the fibrosis testing, the serologic fibrosis testing, it will report back to you a score and they will already convert that into an F score, a Metavir score. And so Metavir scores are basically what we use um, with liver biopsies too. That's what we get back right. to us. And so um, you basically have a scale of F0 to F4. And so the fibrosis testing, serologic testing, is very good at the at the ends of the of the spectrum. So it's really good at saying you're F0, you're non-serotic, and very good at saying you're F4 and you're serotic. But then you get to F1, F2, F3, you know, it, it's basically saying there's disease there, but we don't know how severe the disease is. So I kind of liken it to ASCUS, right? And with pap smears. Mm -hmm. So we know there's abnormalities of the cells there, but could it be high-grade lesions? Could it be low-grade lesions? We're not sure. And so, you know, when you kind of hit the middle numbers, we know that there's some degree of fibrosis, but we're not sure how severe. But we know that it's not none, and we know that it's also not cirrhosis. Mm -hmm. So from a binary perspective, you basically have a spectrum of zero to four. Okay. Four being bad, zero not being bad. And then depending on what your state requirements are with Medicaid or the insurer's um, requirements will kind of determine what level you can treat at. So in Pennsylvania right now, we can treat anybody who's F1 or worse. So F1, F2, F3, F4. Um, there are a lot of states who are just F4s, so you can only treat patients who are cirrhotic. And then, you know, as we're starting to see more drugs get on the market and reduction in, in price for treatment, we're seeing that there's getting to be expanded access, but it's slow. Mm -hmm. And then regarding the NS5A test, um, it'll basically say, you know, resistance predicted for albasivir or resistance predicted for this other drug. And so you'll basically just avoid drugs that have that in it. And based on that NS5A resistance panel, should you need that, that can dictate the length of treatment of certain medications. So depending on the medication that you use, such as uh, grozoprevir, elbosphere, the brand name being Zepatir, you would, if you have certain resistance, you would be treating for 16 weeks as opposed to 12 weeks. So it's it's possible to overcome this resistance, and that's all well explained within the guidelines. Okay. And for the audience, hearing all these names thrown out, they've they've promised me that there's a simple way that we can look at the endings of these were of these me medications and kind of get a sense of of uh, or differentiate among them. So so we'll look out for that in a, in a little bit here. Okay, and then the next part, the the genotyping. There's many different genotypes. I read that the genotype one is the most common in the U.S., and so that's the other part that would be reported. Uh, anything specific that we need to know about that before we move on to, to talking about treatment here? Oh, absolutely. David, do you want to take over that one? So I would say that genotype 1A, although it is the most common, can be the most difficult to treat alongside genotype 3. Um, so genotype 1A is the most studied, just given the prevalence in the United States. So we have the most data for these patients. And so with those patients, we may have to do that extra resistance testing, as we were previously mentioning. But with genotype 3, especially in the compensated cirrhotic patients, this can cause a problem down the road. So we at least want to make sure that we keep an extra close eye on these patients to make sure that they're virologically suppressing. And there are certain drugs that can only, that are what we consider pangenotypic, meaning they would work against all genotypes. Mm -hmm. And there are certain drugs that don't have as great of outcomes with all genotypes. And so you do need your genotype to help to determine the treatment course. Mm -hmm. Let's let's move on and, and try to talk about, let's take, David, maybe give us a typical case that comes back to you that would be relatively straightforward to treat to, to start there and, and how we would give, like how we would start to counsel the patient about what to expect on treatment here. Sure. So let's say you had a 55-year-old male who used cocaine 30 years ago, who's mono-infected, no other co comorbidities, and so has been taken in into care. And so given that there's no comorbidities with this patient, we want to make sure to get all the laboratory results that was said before, but also set the stage and set expectations for the patient mm -hmm. because the patient needs to make sure that they know that this is a very important treatment. Uh, Gina and I usually like to say this is like a really nice Christmas gift you get once in your lifetime because <laughs> the medications are just so expensive. Uh, and so the patient understands the gravity of the treatment. And that being said, the patient needs to understand that this is only maybe a two to three month commitment. 
However, at the end of that two to three months, they still need to come back for their cure labs three months after that. So after that being said, to set the stage of saying, okay, well, how many pills are you going to take? Many of the treatment options are one pill once a day. Uh, however, there's a new option that just came to market that's actually three pills once a day. Um, and then noting whether or not it needs to be taken at morning or evening, uh, whether or not it needs to be taken with or without food. Uh, and finally, making sure to stress the importance of strict adherence. Now, Gina, for, for the drugs, can you tell us your trick to remembering kind of by looking at the the uh, ending of the words here so people can kind of or maybe lay out the the basic ones that exist? Yeah, so I think that to, to dumb it down, because, you know, I, I need to break it down for myself always. I think there are three parts of hepatitis C targets that we should know about. So it's the NS5A, the NS5B, and then the protease inhibitor. Mm -hmm. In terms of the endings, so if anything ends in ASVIR, so that's A, S is in Sam, V is in Victor, IR, like in, in Ledipasvir, that would be an NS5A. If anything ends in BUVIR, which is B as in NS5B, that's an NS5B. So, so Fosbuvir has an NS5B. So a common drug that everyone knows about is Harvoni, which is Sofosbuvir and Ledipasvir. And so that's a combination of an NS5B and an NS5A. And then the other um, part of drugs that we should know about are the protease inhibitors. So those that end in Privir, so P-R-E-V-I-R, like in uh, Griziprivir, that is basically a protease inhibitor. And so most of the combination drugs either combine an NS5A and an NS5B or um, an NS5B and a protease inhibitor or an NS5A and a protease inhibitor or one drug that just came to market is basically a triple treatment for patients who have, you know, need salvage and it's um, one of each class. And salvage, salvage being, that means they failed a regimen and they need to switch to something new? So they found a regimen and they have drug resistance more likely than not. Okay. Very uncommon. David, with these with these classes, the NS5A, NS5B, the protease inhibitors, are there any specific drug-drug interactions or drug-disease interactions that people need to look out for that are really common, high yield? So it all definitely depends on the drug itself. Um, but as a whole, uh, I would say that some of the big ones that come up very frequently are statins, uh, because many of these, especially with the protease inhibitors that we were previously talking, these will raise those levels. So it's very common that we lower statin levels or maybe even take a patient off of a statin while they're on concurrent therapy for the two or three months. Um, another co very common drug interaction is with acid-suppressing medications. Uh, many of these medications need to have an acidic environment for absorption and so can't be taken with those high levels of PPIs. Uh, there are always exceptions to the rule, so we may adjust the drug regimen depending on that. Um, another one last very common uh, drug class as a whole that has many interactions with these medications are anti-epileptics. Um, anti-epileptics you know, tend to reduce levels of everything in their path. And so it becomes very difficult to manage those patients. It's not impossible, but can be done. Uh, I would absolutely recommend what we talked about at the very beginning, that, uh, that app for hepatitis C drug interactions, which can be found at hep-druginteractions.org. And that's uh, through the University of Liverpool. And so that is an excellent resource, very easy to use, and gives you a stoplight, red, yellow, or green. Can you right. use this or can you not? Okay. Yeah, because in a lot of, I, I think for the audience to remind, remind themselves, a lot of our patients, even if they don't have epilepsy, they might be on anti-epileptic drugs for kind of off-label indications or just crossover indications. So that's, that, that is a lot of patients. And w with the acid suppression thing, I just wanted to follow up and ask, is, is that with H2 blockers or the pr uh, proton pump inhibitors? Are they, are they both kind of the same, same risk? So it mostly this data comes from the proton pump inhibitors. Okay. Uh, however, if patients are on very high doses of H2 blockers, this can cause an interaction. Yeah. Um, but to the degree, it depends on the individual agent that you're asking about. Okay. So I would definitely check. Yeah. 
I think if I'm ever in the position to be prescribing these drugs, I'm just going to make friends with a pharmacist like yourself, David, and just call you until I, until I get the hang of things. Because, I, and and I guess that brings it up, Gina. Is this is this multidisciplinary pretty much everywhere? Is that? Yeah, I mean, I I think it it has to be because I mean, I think for the average primary care physician, you have to work with somebody who um, has a really intricate knowledge of the payer system and the the prior authorization approval system. So one of one of the things David said in the beginning is setting expectations for patients. Patients sometimes think they can come into the doctor's office and just get a script same day. And that's just not what it is. I mean, it's really a process of, you know, making sure we get everything that we need to, and then have somebody who has really good working knowledge, like David, David has good relationships with a lot of our payers in the state. And so he can call up when there are, you know, maybe some aberrances so that we're able to really kind of get people treated who are appropriate for it. And so I think somebody who can do that and do that effectively is really important. But I think from our perspective, and the reason why our program works so well is that David's also able to do an immense education for our patients and really catch a lot of these drug interactions that I think are sometimes nuanced. And, you know, we have a very high risk population. We're treating a lot of HIV and hep C co-infected patients, and then people who inject drugs who are on methadone, suboxone, and other medications that you just have to pay attention to. So, Gina, thank you for the excellent endorsement, but uh, not just me. Uh, So I definitely say that some of my colleagues actually down at Vanderbilt down in Tennessee actually published on this uh, and said that should a pharmacist be included in the practice, then patients not only get on treatment faster, but it also increases their satisfaction rate. And so, I mean, I think for the average primary care physician who's interested in taking this on, my two pieces of advice would be, if you're going to start treatment, treat people who are very straightforward and who are, I don't want to say easy, but who are um, good citizens. So, you know, you're not starting with very complicated patients from the get-go. So, you know, we all need to kind of increase our confidence when we're treating for, you know, new things too. But I think starting with, you know, a cadre of a few people and then making sure that you have resources for when you don't know what to do. So befriend a good person in, you know, the region or your regional SIGM or your regional ACP area that you can say, hey, I'm going to start treating hep C because there's such a need and there's so many, there's so few specialists in my area. Can I call you for kind of backup advice about what to do in these scenarios until I kind of get my feet wet and become the local expert? And that's sort of what we did at Temple because, you know, we have so much disease burden and it's just very complicated to get people through specialist doors, especially when there's co-pays that are really precluding patients' treatment. And that's really one of the reasons why we started to treat. I, I, I do want to get through what what's the follow-up like once you get people on on treatment? What kind of monitoring do we need to do during during the on-treatment period? And then we'll get to what happens afterwards. David? So I definitely think that what we should what should be done about two weeks into treatment is checking in with the patient and making sure that there's that initial adherence and making sure that there's no adverse effects that you need to uh, mitigate. But there, thereafter, I would say at about a four-week point, uh, which may be the halfway point of treatment for some patients, to obtain a hepatitis C viral load as well as CMP and CBC uh, to see if there are any abnormalities or to see if any abnormalities are resolving. Uh, that also being said, I'm a big advocate for checking in as often as a patient will need, again, with our high-risk population. So we tend, to, at least at Temple, to check in also at an eight-week point if they're on a 12-week course of treatment. We also then obtain an end-of-treatment visit, which is, again, another hepatitis C viral load as well as CMP, CBC. And finally, three months after your end of treatment and just obtaining those cure labs, which, again, same three labs, hepatitis C viral load, CMP, and CBC. And the three-month cure labs that you're talking about, in the literature, that's referred to as SVR or sustained vir- virologic response. Is that is that correct? That's correct. Now, once somebody has achieved this sustained virologic response, how what what does the follow-up look like there, Gina? What do you do? What's your obligation to that patient going forward from a liver perspective? Yeah, so that's a that's a really good question, and it's it's evolving. So. 
let's say um, we have a patient who is not a cirrhotic and um, they are no longer um, undergoing harmful activities such as using drugs or injecting drugs, um, not getting homemade tattoos with unclean needles. <laughs> the idea there is that they basically get their SVR 12. And I think most people would say they're done in terms of future screenings. There are some physicians and providers who may check here and there a hepatitis C viral load just to ensure that um, they haven't been reinfected, for example. But I think by and large, most people are stopping after the SVR 12 if the patient does not have continuous ongoing harmful activities. For a person who, let's say, is a person who injects drugs and does their best to make sure that they have clean needles but um, has gone through hepatitis C treatment and has cured, I would say that most people would say definitely check a yearly um, hepatitis C viral load on that patient just to ensure that they did not get reinfected. And then finally, for the uh, group of patients who are cirrhotic and have gone through and gotten cured, the concern there is the hepatocellular carcinoma screening. And so what we do know is that we should probably be screening them out at least for three years, if not longer. Um, and so the guidelines for HCC screening has always been to get a, an ultrasound every six months, every six to 12 months. David was just telling me that there is data that came out of the most recent um, IDSA talk that basically said that we should be really doing every six months. I will tell you in practice, it's very difficult to get a patient to care after they've cured their hep C yeah. to come in for, you know, a few six month ultrasounds. So I at least try to get every 12 months. I wanted to highlight that you're, you're, you're using reinfection and that's not something that I had ever really thought about before doing some reading for this talk because so since hep C, there's no vac vaccine for it, you're saying that the body doesn't make antibody like once you've been infected, even if you're cured, you can get reinfected and just be at, you know, start over at zero with like new infection. Yeah. So, I mean, this is what, you know, goes back to the first thing I said, which is basically you always want to make sure that we're screening antibody with reflex, mm -hmm. the viral load, because if a person had hepatitis C cleared it naturally, they would have an, a positive antibody and negative viral load. If a person had hepatitis C and underwent treatment and cured it, they would have a positive antibody and a negative viral load. But a person who went through treatments and developed a negative viral load and then later develops a viral load, let's say three, four years later, then there's a good chance to reinfect it. Um, if it's within a year, it's possible that there's a relapse, meaning that somehow they didn't completely cure and they had some latent hepatitis C living within them. And so it's a little bit of a different story, but it is possible to get reinfected. And a lot of times it's difficult to tell um, if there's a reinfection, unless there's maybe a different genotype of the original yeah. virus sure. and the secondary one. Obviously in research settings, they can do some deep gene sequencing, but for the average person, it's usually genotyping. Okay. And so I will tell you that for reinfection rates, which is a common concern that a lot of people have, especially among people who inject drugs, reinfection rates and cure rates um, are actually pretty promising. So cure rates for people who inject drugs, actively injecting drugs, and or on opiate substitution therapies like suboxone and methadone have cure rates and SVR rates that are just as good as patients who are not. So in the 95 to 97% cure rates in terms of the studies that have been done. And then reinfection rates are um, usually quoted to be around 5 to 7% for people who inject drugs. And so um, that is usually a lifetime risk, not just a yearly risk. So it's a pretty, I think, low risk reinfection rate, as well as a pretty successful treatment rate for people who inject drugs. Obviously, there's a lot of politics and a lot of strong feelings about patients who inject drugs and treating them or not. But I will say that it's going to be very difficult to curb the hepatitis C-related opioid epidemic unless we start treating people who inject drugs. If we only treat boomers, we're not going to really stop the epidemic because they're not spreading it. 
I think also that speaking to the previous point that it becomes some of the most common questions that we get from patients at that cure lab is, am I good to go forever? And so making sure that we do that risk reduction counseling at that cure visit, making sure the patient is aware that you had this once, yes, it's gone, but you can get it again. So making sure the patient at least is aware of their habits uh, or knowing what they can do to reduce that risk. And so usually at that that cure visit lab, that we have or the SBR um, visit that we have. So, you know, talking about future harm reduction is really important. So, you know, a lot of patients are like, no, I'm done with injecting drugs. I'm never going to go through it again. And so I think it's really important to contingency plan for patients. And, you know, in Philadelphia, we're blessed to have a uh, syringe exchange program so that patients are able to get clean needles if they were ever to start using again educate patients that you can actually spread hepatitis hepatitis C through any type of drug works. So through straws for snorting drugs, through tourniquets, through spoons, through vials, through anything that might have come in contact with hepatitis C, um, it's possible to, you know, also infect that way, which I think a lot of people forget. And so, you know, really at that visit, we do a lot of harm, future harm reduction counseling to help to keep people, you know, to not have to go through treatment again. And finally, to also remind them that the hepatitis C antibody will always be positive. So in case people aren't ordering those reflex uh, tests, as Gina mentioned at the very beginning, that they're already educated and aware. Yeah, and and it's not protective. Even if it is positive, it's not protective the way it is if you have a hep B surface antibody. You know, you shouldn't think of the hep C antibody as being protective. Right. Correct. David, I want to, and I might cut this back in earlier into the show, what are the main side effects that patients are going to get when they're on treatment? I, I don't know that we talked about that. I feel that's really important, especially because like, even if I'm not treating patients myself, I might see side effects and, and I need to know what they are. So the general side effects of these are very, very minimal. The direct acting antivirals as a whole class uh, has very few side effects. The biggest one that people do complain about Uh, is a little bit of tiredness. And I usually tell my patients, this is not tired like you can't get out of bed in the morning, but rather you feel a little bit more tired than normal. Uh, That also being said, I usually make sure that they're aware that, you know, if they have any nausea or upset stomach, any diarrhea, headache, this is common with any new medication that they should continue to take the medication and make sure to call the office should this be intolerable. Um, There are a few adverse effects in relation to very specific medications. I always you know, inform them to self-monitor for allergy as we would for any new medication. Uh, and finally, with concurrent statin use, there is always a risk uh, of rhabdo. And so you always want, you always, even though this is a very, very minute risk, um, we still want to make sure the patient is monitoring should they have pains up and down their body, et cetera. Et cetera. Okay. Well, We've talked for a while. I think at this point we should do take-home points unless there's some big hole in the conversation that you think we missed talking about, which it's possible. Yeah, I mean, I think the big thing that we forgot to talk about is who should we be screening for hep C. Mm-hmm. So both previous and current um, injection drug users, there is good recommendations about people who snort drugs, including cocaine, but that would be something that we would also recommend. It's not one of the, you know, the first line recommendations. People who've gotten blood transfusions before 92 and then clotting precipitants before 87. The two that I think are, or the three that I think are really important for primary care are patients who have HIV should also be screened for hep C. People who are on long-term hemodialysis just because of their constant accessing of blood and blood product risk. And then, you know, this is the one I think that everyone thinks about, but we don't always talk about as the patients who have persistently elevated ALTs. Also, one final group would be the men who have sex with men population. Uh, There's been a very significant amount of data showing that, you know, hepatitis C can be sexually transmitted in the MSM population. So these patients should be screened possibly even once a year. Gina, I want to ask you for your take-home points, and then David will we'll get yours yours next. But one or two take-home points that you think are important for the audience here who might want to be starting to offer this therapy in their practice. I think my first take-home point would definitely be to do reflex testing for hepatitis C screening. So that's the antibody that immediately reflexes to the viral load. I, I think in terms of 
trying to, you know, stretch your wings a little bit and start to treat hepatitis C, it's really helpful to find someone who is also treating or who has experience in treating to find out what are some of the barriers in your region for treatments, um, including what it, most insurers and payers expect you to document in your in your notes and then also to get in terms of labs and workup. And then my last one would be once you decide that you're going to start treating, just make sure you start with some non-complicated, straightforward patients to develop your confidence and then rely on that person, that mentor that you had to kind of help you to get through the first couple cases. And David, how about your take-home points for the audience? So I'm going to piggyback right off of Gina's and go to the next step of save yourself the headache because the best medication for the patient, given that they're all very similarly effective, is the medication that is one, paid for, and two, the patient will take. <laughs> so don't try to spin your wheels asking for a medication that is not necessarily on the patient's formulary. I say do the five to 10 minutes of extra research online, which will save you a world of hurt later down the road. So path, path of least resistance there. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. And the research online, you're talking about the preferred drug form, formularies of that patient, right? Correct. Also noting that many of these medications can only come from certain specialty pharmacies based on a patient's, uh, based on a patient's formulary or insurance. And so having that information at the front will help you in terms of your patient counseling later down the road. Yeah. And something that, that you both had told me before, kind of off air, this, this competition in the marketplace has driven the prices down to where I think everyone thinks of these as being $90,000, $100,000. And really in practice now, a lot of places, these, this is not the case. So I think that's important. So people shouldn't just assume that their patients can't get it. Is, I'm putting words in your mouth, but is that, is that fair to say? Yeah. I mean, I think that there... I don't want to throw us all under the bus, but I think that we do have some provider um, reluctance to get patients treated for hepatitis C. And I think part of that is our unfamiliarity with the medications, which hopefully this will help to assuage a little bit of that. But I also think that there's a big black hole when it comes to, is my patient a candidate for treatment? They still drink alcohol. They still use drugs. Is this person really going to be eligible for treatment? And I think that if you have a patient who has chronic hep C, the best thing that you can do is either treat them yourself or get them to somebody who can evaluate them for treatment because the, the drug prices are going down. There's constant changeover in terms of the the Medicaid guidelines for who's eligible for treatment. And I think that we might believe or have preconceived notions of who is an eligible patient, and we might be doing them a disservice. And in terms of the medication shakeup, we have seen quite a number of new medications that have come to market in the last couple of years. But it's important to know that that rapid turnover is slowing down. So the one, the medications that are currently out Although we will see a couple new medications in the next you know, couple of years or so, the medications that are currently out are the medications that we're going to be using and seeing a lot of. So there's maybe three or four combination products that we currently have, and those would be the ones to be familiar with, and they won't be outdated in six months from now. Mm-hmm. And I just have three quick other things that I want to give a shout out to, and then I'll stop talking. So <laughs> okay. the, fir- the first thing is, you know, the case that you presented from Cashlack was a person who was using heroin or previously used heroin. And I think one thing that we can do in the primary care setting, especially as we have this opioid epidemic, is really to ask two questions. Have you ever, as the patient, had a drug overdose from heroin? And have you ever witnessed somebody having a drug overdose from heroin? And if they are, if they have yes as either answer, then that's a great patient to do some overdose prevention um, counseling with, including offering them Narcan or Naloxone, which in our state of Pennsylvania um, is free and actually patients can go to the pharmacy for because there's a standing prescription from the Surgeon General in Pennsylvania. Not the case in all states, but you can prescribe Narcan as a primary care physician. Most Medicaid's cover it for a dollar copay, if not for free. So that's one thing that I think every primary care doctor should know, because I think that's something we can actually do something about. The second thing I wanted to tell you guys about is that, um, and I think this is a little known fact, is that if we actually treat patients' hepatitis C and cure them, and patients also have comorbid conditions like diabetes, the likelihood of the diabetes 
control getting and better and improving is pretty high because we are improving the insulin resistance that the patient has because of the hepatitis C virus. So we cure hep C, we improve insulin resistance and diabetes outcome. I love that. I never heard that before. That's awesome. I know. I, I wanted to throw that in there because, you know, we're being measured now by our quality. So we have to get those yeah. B1Cs down. <laughs> and then last but not least, I guess this is like my my B number two take home um, hit list is um, <laughs> David and I didn't mention it, but we keep referring to it. There are guidelines that are online, hcvguidelines.org, which are basically the AASLD and the IDSA guidelines that have never been published in print because they've been so actively updated and turned over with the new medications and the changing landscape. But that's a very good resource. It talks about basically who to treat, how to treat by genotype, by special populations, by CKD patients, which we didn't really get a chance to talk about, by transplant patients. I mean, more complicated stuff, but it's a really good resource for people who need to start to get familiar with this. Can I add in one extra point? Uh-huh. The, um, we previously, this would go with the previous conversation. We were talking about Hep B and why we get the Hep B serologies. And so the reason behind getting those Hep B serologies is is actually a black box warning on all of the mm-hmm. um, co- of all of the co-formulated direct acting antivirals that should a patient be hepatitis C and hepatitis B co-infected, even if the hepatitis B is under control, there is a risk of hepatic flare and loss of neurologic control. And so those patients would just need to be um, monitored a little bit more closely. Um, Whether or not it's clinically relevant is still kind of evolving and left up to debate, but those patients should just be, have a closer eye on them. Yeah. And I'll put, I I found an article that I'll I'll include in the show notes about that. There, there's some case reports of this and, uh, it wasn't recognized. uh, There was delayed recognition in some of those case reports. So that's definitely a great point to mention. So the best article, if you want it, is actually from Hepatology, and it was written, the last name of the author was Del Perio, first name is Pam, um, and she had the entire thing from the VA system. I think it's like 63,000 patients or something like that. Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you so much, both of you. I mean, I think this is this topic is deep. I think the training for the providers in the Ascend trial was like three hours, so we tried to do it in an hour, which is, you know, mm. a tall order, but I think this is a good starting point, and my goal was that it, not not necessarily that people can treat today, but that they'll at least know if their patients are being treated by a specialist or by someone else, or they're seeing patients in the hospital that are on these meds. Now we'll kind of know what to look out for. We'll feel a little more comfortable. So thank you so much to both of you. Of course. And, you know, I think, David, I'm speaking for both of us, but if there are individuals in your listening audience who want to start treating and need some backup, we are happy to help. Yeah, absolutely. Send them our way. Okay. All right. Awesome. So that's it. We're done. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. You can also sign up to receive our weekly mailing list, where you'll receive our expertly made show notes, sometimes with pretty figures. You can get that at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. And finally, we're committed to providing you with high value, practice changing knowledge. So send us an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. You can recommend a future topic or tell us what you love or hate about the show. And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at thecurbsiders. And before I say goodnight, I'd like to thank Sarah Roberts and Jordana Kozupski, who helped write this episode and make our wonderfully done show notes. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Watto. Good night. I don't know. Your Wi-Fi, maybe. I'm not sure. And my cheap crap of Wi-Fi. (laughs) (laughs) That's going to be the intro.